Well, good morning, Abundant Life Church. How are you today? Good to see you. Will you help me welcome our campuses in Sandy and in Vancouver and those watching online today? Thank you so much. Good to see all of you. I don't know if you know this or not, but today, Abundant Life Church celebrates 28 years. 28 years today. Yeah, this, this church started 28 years ago and over in the Pleasant Valley grade school. And so it's been an amazing journey. This is an exciting day for our church. It's an exciting season for our church. And I'm, uh, I'm honored and excited to be able to share with you at the end of the message a very special announcement today. But I need to get into the message. We are going to begin a series today actually through a book that I've taught through before, and it's the book of Ruth, and it's a series that I've called Amazed by Love. And so today, what I'm going to do is, I'm, and what I'm going to do in this entire series, actually, is I, the book is four chapters long, so the series is four, is four weeks, and I'm going to kind of tiptoe through each chapter each week, and then at the end of the message, I'm going to draw two or three life application principles that apply to all of us thank you so much, that apply to all of us. All right. And that apply to all of us, and, and, uh, and that's the way we're going to walk through this, okay? So we need to jump right. I need to make sure I didn't have to deal with something right, like right then and there. Okay, so let's get into uh, Ruth and Amazed by Love. Now, the book of Ruth it's an exciting book. It's an amazing book. It's, it's oftentimes referred to as the crown jewel of the Old Testament. And that's not hard to understand because when you read the story and as you go through it, it's a story of unimaginable pain and loss. It's a story of unwavering friendship and commitment. It's a story of love and romance. It's a story that's filled with ironies and perplexing questions. It expresses the survival of these relentless women. It expresses the grace and the graciousness of a caring man. But overall, and underneath the entire story, the backdrop to the whole story is about a heavenly father who is intricately involved in the events of our lives and who is watching and who is engaged and who is a part of all of the parts of our lives, whether they be the good parts or the bad parts, the mountaintops or the valleys, the tragedies or the celebrations, he is intimately revolved and ultimately he redeems us. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. And so let's jump right into chapter one, a, a chapter that is filled with tragedy and it's filled with loss. In verse one, in those days when the judges Ruled. Now, let me stop for a second and just say that this is a, a deep, dark time in Israel's history. It's one of Israel's darkest periods, uh, darkest moments in time. It's in a time when it says when the judges ruled, the, the people were godless, they were uh, wicked, they were rebellious, they were, uh, they were falling into all kinds of temptation. And it's a time that you can read about in the book of Judges, which is the book that precedes the book of Ruth. If you know the Old Testament, it goes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And the last verse in the book of Judges that precedes the book of Ruth says this in Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so you can only imagine what it must have been like, what the culture must have been like, what the context must have been like. The setting was morally bankrupt, and the people did whatever they wanted to do. They did what was right in their own eyes. Now, that's something that you and I would not be familiar with, would we? <laughs> we, we, we couldn't possibly understand living in a culture where there is no absolute right or wrong, where people just kind of did whatever they wanted to do and didn't really care about anyone else. We, we couldn't really grasp that. But that's the situation in which this, this book is written, in which this story takes place. And the verse goes on, there was a famine in the land. Now, we're not told, but most likely the reason for this famine in the land is because of God's judgment on the people because of their disobedience to him. Famine was often a sign of God's judgment on his people when they were living in disobedience and rebellion. And if they would not obey him, then he would not bless them. And so there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now, back in the day, names were given to people and to places um, for a very specific reason. They had significance to them. Unlike today, when oftentimes we give a name to someone, it's typically because we like the sound of the name, or it reminds us of a movie star or an actor or something like that. Well, here in this story, there's lots of significance to the names that are given here. And so one of the subtle ironies of the story is they were from Bethlehem. It says, and the man from Bethlehem, together with his wife and two sons, they went to live for a while in the country of Moab. And so Bethlehem means a place of bread. It was a place of bread. So God's people, think about it, this is the irony. God's people are starving at the great bread company. They're, they're starving at the great harvest bread company. And, and so now the husband, he's faced with a decision, do I stay in Bethlehem, the house of bread, where there is no bread, where there is no food, and leave and go to a place where there is food? Do I move them to Moab? Now, Moab was a city about 50 miles away from Bethlehem. I have a picture of that right here to give you a feel for the context. Bethlehem is here where they live, and so they have to go north and cross the Jordan River and then go back south to the land of Moab. It was a, a journey of about 50 miles. But the interesting thing is there's, there's no famine here, but there's a famine here, which again seems to indicate that this could be God's judgment on the people. And so this sounds reasonable enough that they would make this journey about 50 miles, which for us, you know, today, that doesn't seem like a very long distance, right? But for them, that would be quite a journey to take. And so they, they take this journey and, and they begin heading to the north and then to the, to the south and, and eventually east to, to Moab. Now, what's the big deal? Why Moab? Why, why be concerned that they would go to Moab? Because any Israelite would hear that they were moving to Moab. They would say, no, 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 no. That's a bad move. You, you don't make that move. You don't take that step. Well, the problem is, to begin with, the Moab people were the result 
of a sexual relationship that Lot had with one of his daughters. You remember Lot, he was Abraham's nephew, and he had a sexual relationship with one of his daughters, and the son born to that relationship was Moab. And that began the Moabite people. And in addition to that, when the children of Israel were headed to the Promised Land, the Moabites would not allow them to come through their ter territory to get to the Promised Land. And so you take all of that and you add to that that these were mean, they were wicked, they were evil, they were nasty, they were sexually perverted people, they worshiped false gods that required the sacrifice of children to this false god. And so you put all of this together, there's every reason not to go to Moab. And just to put it in really, really simple terms, the Moabites were not the Brady Bunch, okay? And so you didn't want to be hanging around with these people. So the husband, he makes a tragic decision to move his family to a place they had no business going, regardless of how bad things were in Bethlehem, the house of bread. But he reasoned, it would be better to go to a place with food and no God than to stay in a place with no food and God. And so that's the decision he made. In verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech. Everybody say Elimelech. Elimelech. Now, here's another irony of the story. The name Elimelech means my God is king. My God is king. My God is the ruler of my life. He's the one who calls his shots. He's the one who is in charge. He's the one who is in, in control. However, Elimelech is not acting that way. In other words, what he's thinking is since my life is getting tough and since we don't have food, since we don't have bread to eat, and since it doesn't look like God is taking care of us, I guess we'll have to take matters into our own hands and care for ourselves. Have you ever been in a place like that where you feel like maybe God wasn't taking care of you, so you decided I need to take matters into my own hands? His wife's name was Naomi. Now, Naomi means sweet, okay? She was a sweetie pie. She was a sweetheart, just a kind-hearted person. She was the kind of wife or the kind of mother that, that any of us would love to have had. She was a keeper, we would say today. And so definitely, Elimelech married up. And then the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. Everybody say Malon and say Kilion. Now, those are pretty cool names, aren't they? I mean, they're the kind of names where you think, oh, I like those names. I think if I have children that I might, and we have sons, that maybe I'll name one of them Malon and maybe name one of them Kilion because those kind of sound like Star Trek kind of names, right? But I wouldn't encourage you to name your children that because, because Malon means sick and Kilion means dying, okay? And so you can just say, hi, my name is, is Sick, and this is my brother dying. And so you probably don't want to be naming your kids that. And so they went to Moab, and they, they lived there. So now, Elimelech and Naomi, they, they have a garage sale. They, they, they sell all the stuff they don't want to travel with. They call U-Haul and get it all packed up and get it sent off to Moab. They, they call Uber to come pick them up, and, and they head off of the badlands of, of Moab. Now, let's stop right here for just a second. Elimelech reminds us of a very foolish yet common mistake that as husbands and parents we sometimes make. And that mistake is this. 
that sometimes we're more concerned about meeting the physical needs of our family to the neglect of our spiritual needs. After all, I've got to put food on the table. The pressure is big to do that. There's the pressure to move into a bigger and a better house. There's, there's the pressure to climb the corporate ladder. There's the pressure to provide the best, and often at the expense of the spiritual well-being of the family. And so the, we, we will oftentimes neglect the spiritual implications of the decisions that we make every day. Let me ask you a question. Did you ever make a decision that in your heart you knew that this will not be a decision that's going to be pleasing to God, but I'm going to go ahead and make the decision anyway because I think it's the best thing to do or because it's something I want to do. You ever been in that kind of a position? And that's kind of where Elimelech is now. Do you ever feel like in your life that you can do a better job of running your life than God does? Do you ever feel like that? I think if we're honest, sometimes we would say, yeah, I, I feel like that. So here's the mistake that Elimelech made. His decision, it seemed to make financial sense, but it jeopardized the, the family, spiritually speaking. And so we come to verse 3, and this is where life begins to unravel for Naomi. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. Here's another irony of the story. Why did Elimelech leave Bethlehem, the house of bread? Well, because if he doesn't leave, he's going to die. There's no food, he reasons only to move to Moab, and what happens? He dies. He dies. And, and, and we wonder, you know, why, why is that? And you know, we don't know how he died. You know, he could have fallen off of a camel. You ever been on a camel? Anybody ever been on a camel? It's easy to fall off those things, okay? If you ever get on one, just hold on, okay? And he could have fallen off of a camel, hit his head on a rock, could have had a heart attack. We don't know. We don't know why he died. But what this shows us is that death is in God's hands. And one of the perplexing questions of life, and I get asked this as a pastor from time to time, why does this person continue to live, and it seems like for all practical purposes, they should have died a long time ago, and why does this one die? And they're so young, and it's so tragic. Do you ever wonder about that? It's one of the perplexities of life. And then in verse 4, and so they married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. Now, this is interesting because Moabites were not allowed in the public assembly of God's people. And so I suppose Elimelech must have concluded, well, they don't have public assemblies of worshiping God here anyway in, in Moab, and uh, maybe we're going to be here the rest of our life anyway, so what difference does it make? And so very interesting as the story will continue to develop. And so one was named Orpah. Everybody say Orpah. Okay, Orpah. Now, that's not to be confused with Oprah. Okay, she's the TV show host. And it's not to be confused with uh, Orca. Okay, that's the killer whale. And it's not to be confused with okra. Okay, okra is the is that stuff you eat with turnip greens. Okay, her, her name is, is Orpah. And her name means to turn back. That's what the name means. 
And her sister's name was Ruth. Now, Ruth obviously is the main character of the story. And her name means friend or companion. Friend or companion. And so they live in Moab for about 10 years, and, and then tragedy strikes again. Malon and Kilion die. And again, we don't know why, but the story now is getting about as bleak as it can possibly get. Naomi's husband is gone. Her boys are gone. I mean, can you think of anything more devastating than burying your husband and then just years later to stand over the grave of your two sons? The story is, is going from bad to worse. In just five verses, Naomi's life has gone into a tailspin, into devastation, and everything has fallen apart. Now, have you figured out in life that things can change just about that fast? Sure. We, we hear stories of that all the time in, in, in this church. It, it's a picture of desperation. Now, back in the day, that was a big curse to be a woman and not to be married. And, and, and here she is all alone, and, and, and she has no husband or sons to provide for her. And, and this is not good. This is not good for her. This is incredible hardship on, on her life. And so the question is, how is Naomi going to respond to this? So she's been away from home for a long time. Look at verse 6 and 7. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living, and she set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. This is the first time that God's name is mentioned in the book. He never speaks in the book, but his name is mentioned 23 times in this book. Now, the name of the book may be Ruth, and she may be the main character in the book, but the mega theme throughout the book is the providence of God. That's the big theme. That's what I want you to see, the providence of God in their life and in our lives today. Because the reality is, God is always moving. God is always acting. He's always moving everything according to his redemptive purposes. You see it happening all the way through the Bible, and I'm sure you've seen it in your life. Throughout the Bible, you see the visible hand of God in what we would call miracles. You see the visible hand, parting of seas, burning of bushes, um, virgin birth, the, the birth of, of, a, of a baby who would grow to, to raise the dead, and he, he himself would be raised from the dead. And so you see the visible hand of God moving in miracles. A lot of you have seen the visible hand of God moving in your life through miracles, but you also see throughout the Bible the visible hand, the invisible hand of God, rather, in his providence, the invisible hand of God in his providence. Invisible to those who don't believe, but visible to those of us who have eyes of faith. How many of you have seen the, in, the invisible hand of God moving in your life? Other people say, ah, it just happened. It's just a coincidence. Anybody here ever have, uh, you know, it just so happened moment in your life? Sure. We, you know, we have those all the time. For those of us who are people of faith, we see those as, 
as moments where the invisible hand of God is moving in ways in our life. And what we have to believe is that God is at work. Not that God used to work, but God is at work today and in the events of our life today. You have to believe that because what we'll discover in life through the good and the bad, God never leaves us. God never forsakes us. And he's always at work in our life. God is big enough to use whatever happens in your life. And the, the good and the bad, the, the, the stuff that makes sense, the stuff that's senseless, and to redeem it for his purposes. And so Naomi hears that God is working in Bethlehem. And so she decides to return home. And so they, they've buried their loved ones together. They, they've, uh, they've stood over their graves together. They've wept together. And they've come to the conclusion, Naomi does, that, that we can stay here no longer. I can stay here no longer. I need to go back to the land I left. And so in verse 8, they're on their way back, and, and they stop and they have this conversation. They're, they're headed back now to Bethlehem, and all of a sudden, Naomi stops, and, and, and she says to her daughters-in-law, you go back, each of you, to your mother's home. And may the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and that you've shown to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them, and she wept aloud, and she said to her, we will go back with your people. But Naomi said, no, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have more sons who could become your husbands? She says, just return home. I mean, are you going to wait for me to have more sons so that you can marry? It's too late for me. My time is past. And so here she is in the midst of her tears. Naomi stops to reason with them. And she basically says, I've got nothing to offer you. Even if I'm married today and have sons, are you going to wait for them to grow? Let me ask you a question. What do you do when the clock is working against you? What do you do? What do you do when you have enough wisdom to do it over, but you don't have enough time to do it over? What do you do when you miss your season, your window of opportunity? What do you do when you've got the desire to do it, you've got the passion to do it, but you stand before the mirror and the wrinkles and the bags under your eyes and, and other parts of your body say, you don't have the time to do it. What do you do? She's basically saying, I don't have time to get married again. I don't have time to get pregnant again. Go on with your lives. Go find husbands. Have babies. Get on with your life. Basically, is what she's saying. And she prays for them. At the end of this little conversation, she says, I have nothing to give you, but may God give you everything you need. Which, by the way, um, there are numerous prayers in the book of Ruth, and no one ever prays for themselves. And every prayer is answered in the book by the end of the book. Now, here's a question for you today. If the mega theme of the book is the sovereignty and the providence of God, then why pray? Why pray? 
Why pray if God is sovereign? And here's the answer to that question. We pray because God is sovereign. We pray because God is sovereign. We pray because God is sovereign. He's good, and he wants to help us, and he can help us, and he does help us. That's why we pray. And so in verse 14, at this they began to wept, and then Orpah, she, she kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. She clung to her. And then, so Orpah does what most think that they should do, and that's turn around and, and go back home to the, to the land that they know. But in verse 15, this is what Ruth says. Look, said Naomi. This is what Naomi says. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and to her gods. Go back with her. Just go back with her. Can you just imagine this moment? And then in verse 16, Ruth speaks for the first time. And her words are famous words. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Because where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. And your God will be my God. I mean, Ruth is literally at a crossroad moment in her life. Is it Moab or is it Bethlehem? Is it the one true God of Naomi or the false gods of her people? I mean, this is a gutsy move by a Moabite woman. This takes a lot of faith. She basically has nothing. She has no husband. She has no family to speak of. She has no money. The Hebrews hate the Moabites. I mean, this is a woman who had faith like Abraham to trust her, to trust God. But the interesting thing is here that's different from Abraham is that we get no indication that this is what God is instructing her to do. She is trusting in the character of God and taking this immense step of faith. And I want you not to miss something here. Don't, don't miss the power of your spiritual family, your second family. You see, you and I have two families. We have our family of birth, and we have our family of new birth. We have our family by blood, and we have our family by the blood of Christ. And you're especially blessed if you have both. But oftentimes... Your church family is your primary and most important family. Never take for granted your spiritual family. Ruth chose the family of new birth over her first family. And so when Naomi realized that Ruth is not going to turn back, she stopped urging her. And so the two women, they continued on to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, people saw, oh, my gosh, oh, no, Naomi, she's back. I mean, can this be Naomi? She had left like 10 years or so ago. Can this be Naomi? And so they, they see her. I mean, the bloggers are going crazy. Twitter is going off the charts, and people are on Facebook and say, guess who's back in town? Guess who's back in town? Naomi, how are you? How are you doing, Naomi? It's so good to see you back again. Verse 20, don't call me. Naomi, which means what? Sweet. Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. The word Mara means bitter. In other words, Naomi has become a bitter old woman. No fun to be around. And a lot of people, they rag on, on Naomi for being bitter. Some would say, you're not supposed to be bitter, Naomi. Bitter is bad. You're supposed to put on a happy face and pretend like everything is okay. I mean, if she'd been in a small group and she would have been in prayer requests, you know, when it came around to her time, she would have said, I've got nothing to talk to God about. In fact, I, I, I don't even like him right now. I'm just kind of angry with God right now. He still very harshly with me right now. I mean, people in, in the small group might go, oh, I can't believe you just said that. And so what we do is we come to church and we put on a happy face or a smile and everything's fine. Everything's good. When the reality is some of you may be bitter toward God right now. You could be angry. And so if Ruth's virtue is loyalty, Naomi's is honesty. Now, this story takes a turn for the good, okay? So hold on, because right now this is just tragedy. You've got to come back. How many of you are going to come back next week? Raise your hand. If you're going to come back next week, good, good, good. What I want you to see is your life and mine are so much like Elimelech's and Naomi's and Ruth's in this way. There are things that happen in our life that just don't seem right, that just don't seem fair, for which we don't have the answers. We don't know why things happen the way they do. And so there's some life lessons that I want us to gain from this very quickly today. Here's lesson number one. Stay in Bethlehem. Just stay in Bethlehem. I mean, when there's a famine in your life, stay in Bethlehem. If there's a famine in your life, stay in Bethlehem. Now, again, what does Bethlehem mean? It's the house of bread. So let me ask you a question. What is our bread? Or maybe more, uh, uh, maybe better ask is, who is our bread? It's Jesus. It's, it's Jesus. In, in John chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. No one coming to me will ever be hungry again. And so by describing himself as bread, where Jesus is saying that I am essential for life. I'm essential for life. In all of our longings, Jesus is essential. In all of our failings, Jesus is essential. So stay in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is not about a physical location. It's about the personal presence of Jesus in your life. Because there are times in our life where we get bad news from the doctor, and I encourage you, when you get bad news from the doctor, stay in Bethlehem. When a loved one dies unexpectedly, stay in Bethlehem. When you sin, and when your sin weighs heavily on you, stay in Bethlehem. Why? Because it's in Bethlehem, the house of bread, the person of bread, that you are in the light of his presence. It's there in Bethlehem that you receive God's grace, his mercy, his provision, his understanding. And, and all of that you receive from Jesus, you receive by staying in connection with him. And so just let me ask you a question. When there is a famine in your life, whatever form it happens to take, whether it's financial, relational, spiritual, moral, or whatever it happens to be, when there's a famine in your life and temptation comes and all of these things, like, like with Elimelech and, and all of it, this family, are you going to leave Bethlehem and run to Moab or are you going to stay with Jesus and stay with God's people and stay connected to the bread? Here's number two, lesson number two. Before you look to Moab, stop and count the blessings you already have. 
Before you look to Moab, stop and count the blessings you already have. In verse 21, there's a very insightful verse. It says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. In other words, Naomi was saying, there was a famine in the land, but I was still blessed. And I left. Sometimes you and I don't realize the blessings we have until we no longer have them. Right? And sometimes when we go through a famine, a dry season, we lose sight of the blessings that we have in our life. Sometimes the things that we're worried about, the famines in our life, are not nearly as significant as the blessings that you still have. Sometimes what we have lost isn't nearly as significant as what we have left. In the midst of the famine, Naomi still had her husband. And she still had her sons. Sometimes you, you and I, um, we don't appreciate something until it's lost. And here's lesson number three. No matter how hard or senseless life becomes, God is working in your life for his glory and for your good. And I think this is one of the most important lessons that you and I can learn today. No matter how hard life may become, God is working in your life for his glory and for your good. Our lives don't always take the course that we think they should take. Sometimes they're filled with pain. Sometimes they are filled with rejection. Sometimes they're filled with senseless tragedy. But God is at work even in those times, and you've got to believe that. When, when we come to the times in our life like Naomi where we will have questions that we cannot answer and we can't figure it out, we have to believe that God is still working in our lives for our good and for his purposes. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 says this, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God. Naomi couldn't see it at the time. But in time, she would see it. It's the same way with you and me. At the time of tragedy, sometimes we can't see why this is happening. But in time, we'll see. And as this story unfolds, we'll be amazed at God's love for her and for Ruth as he turns this tragedy around and brings great blessing into their lives. Chapter 1 ends with a very interesting verse. In verse 22, it says... So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. God brought them back to Bethlehem. He brought them back to the house of bread at the beginning of the barley season. In other words, the message here is that he was about to do something new in their lives. And you see, some of us here in this room today, we've run to Moab. And maybe God is saying to you, come back to Bethlehem, come back to the house of bread, come back to Jesus, because when you do, I will do something brand new in your life too. I'm going to ask if, if you would bow your head and as we close out today, some of you here today, or maybe going through a senseless tragedy. Some of you are dealing with enormous pain. Some of you have perplexing questions. Some of you have run to Moab. 
And, and God is saying, come back to Bethlehem. Come back to the house of bread. Come back to Jesus, the bread of life. And that may be you today. And so I want to invite you to say to the Lord today, Lord Jesus, I come back. I come back to you. And I ask you to begin a new work in my life today. If you're here today and you've never come to faith in Jesus Christ, he wants to do a new work in your life. And, and that begins by receiving the greatest gift he has to give you, the bread of life, his son, Jesus. And so if that's your desire today, I'm going to ask if you would pray this prayer with me. Just repeat this after me. And I, again, I invite all of you who have ever made the decision to follow Jesus, if you also would pray. Father in heaven, today I thank you for Jesus, the bread of life. Today I come back to Jesus. I ask you to forgive me of my sin and to begin a new work of grace and mercy in my life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.